For this week's magazine podcast, we're turning the mic over to our colleagues at PS1. Professor and author Dr. Nicole Fleetwood speaks with four artists from her show, Marking Time, currently on view at MoMA PS1. On today's show, they'll discuss their art, relationship to incarceration, and how they are radically reimagining empathy in the social justice system. Hi, I'm Nicole Fleetwood. I'm a professor of American Studies and Art History at Rutgers University. And for the past decade, I've been working on a project called Marking Time, Art in the Age of Mass Incarceration. The project actually began with a series of photos of my cousins in prison. During visits over the years, I've had several relatives, especially male cousins, spend long sentences in Ohio prisons. And during those visits, we'd always take photographs at the makeshift photo studios that exist in a lot of visiting rooms in prison. And those images for me are quite remarkable in that they are the only time when imprisoned people can take a photograph with their loved ones. But they're also spaces that are operated by imprisoned people. So the photographer is someone who's incarcerated. The backdrops are usually painted by imprisoned people. And so I got more and more interested in the visual culture and art making of imprisonment during these visits to my own incarcerated loved ones. About 10 years ago, I took out these images that had been stored in my drawers and under my bed, and I started hanging them around the house as a way of actually bringing my incarcerated cousins into my everyday life and also resisting what the state had done to them, which is erase them from family, from public life, from everyone and everything that they love. And actually from that very intimate project around my family, Marking Time just continued to grow. I met hundreds and hundreds of artists, activists, educators, lawyers, and activists across the country, artists who are making incredible work. And over the course of time, I interviewed about 70 artists, some in prison, others formerly incarcerated. And those interviews were the basis of my book, Marking Time. And from the book, I was able to collaborate with PS1 on this incredible exhibition that involves over 40 artists. Many of the artists have been in prison. Some are currently in prison. And, and others are conceptual and socially engaged artists who've never been in prison, but whose work really engages rigorously with the carceral state, with mass incarceration, punitive governance, immigrant detention, and other ways that the government used criminalization to target the most marginalized people. Today, I'm really excited to be in conversation with artists creating new visions for us of thinking about how we undo the very structures that we take for granted. Helene Flowers has two really powerful wall pieces that incorporate biopoetry. One is called I Am a Super Predator, in which he recounts in details being labeled at the age of 16 as a super predator and being sentenced to two life sentences. It's an incredible piece where he also engages with media representations of Black youth as monstrous animals, and he works against that through his kind of recounting and restaging of his own experiences. My name is Harleen Flowers. And, uh, you know, my art practice is me getting a, a life sentence at the age of 16, two life sentences, 
the only way I saw that I can get out was through like litigating law. So I did a lot of like study of language because when you litigate law, you have to learn Latin and through learning Latin and studying the etymology of words. At that time I was a rapper and then I transitioned into poetry. And then I started writing self-help books when I started my own publishing company. But now I'm more to like visual arts, but when I was incarcerated, by me having a license, I didn't have the luxury to get away from the law library to go to the art room. I had to stay in the law library. And um, so a lot of my artistic expression was written then, but now it's visual. And um, my introduction to like visual arts was just through listening to Jay-Z. Jay-Z kept rapping about Basquiat. I was in prison, I had no access to the internet. I had no access to uh, social media. I thought Jay-Z was like name dropping about some champagne or some clothes or some uh, exclusive travel location. But then I, I had kept up a, a subscription to the Wall Street Journal and they had an article on John Michelle Basquiat. And from that point on, it just gave me a, a greater, seeing that it was somebody that looked like me who received the claim in, in, in the fine art, visual art world. And his work is just dope and it's mostly text-based like mine is because he was a poet too. It just like um, gravitated me heavily towards the visual art world. And once I was released, like everywhere I traveled, I just started going to the museums. And um, in November, I started doing what I like to call like photo poetry, like taking stuff like this from the Wall Street Journal and adding like my text to it and creating like photo poetry prints. And um, and I just, I'm addicted to it. I, I love, you know, the visual art now, so. Just talk to me about reading Our Prisons Obsolete from the Side of Captivity. After um, reading Our Prisons Are Obsolete by Angela Davis, while I was serving a life sentence, I had never thought about abolishment. Like I knew through living in, in, in prisons and being a jailhouse lawyer, I knew that um, just the institution of prisons, uh, how they operate in this country, runs afoul of the Eighth Amendment protection against cruel and unusual punishment. But I even never thought about like, what would a world look like without jails and prisons? So when she first presented it, I was like, well, damn, well, what are we gonna do with the people who, you know, harm people? And I realized how deeply I had become indoctrinated by the Western concept of crime and punishment. And this resonated with me as an artist. He said, we're gonna to have to use our imagination to vision something different. As Oprah Winfrey said, like, we can't get to where we wanna go by doing what we are doing now. And so from that point on, when I read that book, of course, you know how the, you know, the law of attraction worked. I just started attracting people, places and things that was pushing the abolishment um, envelope. And now I could see it more like, we can still hold people accountable who cause harm, but we don't have to punish them. And we can have places for them. Rich people get to send their kids to like border, uh, like boarding schools and, and they work their problems out. And I know that we can recreate this process where the community, um, instead of the third party state coming in with a set, a, pre, a predetermined amount of years or capital punishment as the only uh, remedy for, um, implementing justice in situations where people have been harmed. I think, and I know, I'm certain that we can use our capital to create centers, spaces where people can really like receive the love and the nurturing and the treatment that they need to address their mental health issues, their social economic issues, their, uh, you know, other issues that they have that leads to them 
committing what we say a harm. So, um, so I'm just like completely for abolition. Reform is just not even in, in my vocabulary because you can't reform prison. It's just the culture of the correctional unions and staff and administration is just, inhumanities is so deeply embedded in that institution that is no way you can reform it. How did you how did you get released from a from a two a double life sentence? Through my writings, my my uh, publications, I was able to develop relationships with a lot of academics, professors, and local legislators and um, attorneys. So when the law was proposed, it was titled the Incarceration Reduction Amendment Act in D.C. by D.C. Council. It would allow any person who got a life sentence as a child under the age of 18 to be to have the opportunity to be resentenced and released after serving 20 years but the law wasn't going to be made retroactive so when they before they had the public hearings for the law I was able to like to email all the city council the mayor they didn't know there was still people from the 80s and 90s that had juvenile life it was juvenile life and so through my story and having people to come testify on my behalf at the hearing they uh during the mock-up process they amended it made it retroactive it, 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 it was um, enacted on April 4th, 2017. And I came back in 2018 for my resentencing process. And I eventually was released on March 21st, 2019. What is your definition of abolition and what replaces prisons? Um, my definition of abolition is like the demolition of the buildings of all the prisons that exist today in jails. What replaces is this community centers. Um, not third-party state institutions that people profit from. The community these centers, these spaces will be built by the people from the community that these individuals come from and they will be ran and operated by them. And the people in the community will decide when a person is ready or not to come back to their community. How do you address abolition in your art? I use imagery and text to show that prison is directly connected through the 13th Amendment to chattel property slavery. And I just enlighten people on the historical connections that lead to the contemporary uh, harsh realities of the prison system today and how it's just inhumane. Because a lot of people are privileged from it. So you create visuals and text and sound to connect with people who are privileged from being directly impacted, connecting with them in a visceral way, not just that, not just an empathetic way, but an empathy that drives them to action to uh, abolish the current state of affairs. James Hoff is an artist, activist, educator who spent 27 years in prison in Pennsylvania. He was sentenced to life without parole, also as a juvenile when he was 17 years old and was released from prison in August of 2019, in large part because of a ruling in the Supreme Court that minors could not be sentenced to life without parole, that that was cruel and unusual punishment. And it was that case argued by the great civil rights activist, Brian Stevenson, that led to the release of James Hoff and other people who were sentenced to life without parole for the age of 18. During his 27 years in prison, James made thousands of works, often on uh, small works on prison documents. He actually enjoyed working on prison documents and repurposing these administrative forms that tethered him to prison and turning them into incredible artworks. As he worked to create a new symbolic language to talk about the racial and sexual violence and hierarchies in prison.
Uh, so I am James Yaya Huff. I am a contemporary artist. I would describe my practice as one that seeks to examine certain dominant themes in American history, um, such as uh, race, mass incarceration, violence, uh, masculinity, and also themes of identity and pop culture in general too. Tell us about your position as the inaugural artist in residence for the district attorney. 2019, I was selected as the artist in residence, the inaugural or first artist in residence for the Philadelphia district attorney's office. What that residency sought to um, explore was the lives of persons in Philadelphia in particular, and how their lives were impacted by the criminal justice system, and more specifically, how those impacts led to a form of activism that produced change. And I did that by creating a residency, by titling the residency Points of Connection, and then conducting a series of interviews and producing a series of uh, very like intimate portraits of the subjects. But those subjects came from three different uh, or three groups that sort of overlap in the criminal justice impacted person world. Um, and those three large groups were persons that in staff for the DA's office, returning citizens, uh, and persons who are survivors or victims of crime. And um, through those interactions, uh, we made some powerful connections. Um, right now, I am finishing the walking tours, and those walking tours consist of taking people uh, to various sites in Philadelphia where the paintings are on display and having conversations about what justice means to them personally, um, but in a larger context, like against the backdrop of this election, historically, and, and in any other way to configure. But we have uh, deep conversations about those things on the tours. And um, it's been very fruitful up to this point. So I've been very satisfied. I've heard you talk about, if you're willing to talk about this, like what is the place in this conversation around abolition for someone who harms someone? To me, it's front and center. That person or those persons, whomever they may be, those persons are the primary stakeholders in that conversation. They not only are the primary actors in what we like to call harming others, which is in, in fact harming themselves simultaneously. I mean, they have the unique perspective, uh, in, in, in a unique perspective to offer, but also uh, can provide an example of positive transform transformation. You know, as a society, we're at a point where the prison system that we currently possess, it needs to be abolished, right? And in a lot of ways, it's, it's abolishing itself um, based on the fact that it's, it's, it's built off structures that cannot maintain themselves, right? But we have a society that's invested in making money off of it, you know, so it sort of artificially keeps the, the current prison system alive, you know. So the only thing that really can force the abolition of the current system we have that's, that's, that we know of as mass incarceration is really the will of, of, of the citizenry, the will of good people and the will of those stakeholders, those people who find themselves in prison and ex-offenders who are out of prison, people who have been impacted by the justice system return to society who are out of prison. But to me, that's that's their place in the conversation. That's that's that, that it's front and center. You said the person who harms someone else harms themselves, and I just yeah. wanted to hear you say more about that and where that where that understanding comes from. You, what is that rooted in? 
fortunately for me, I was able to do enough time in prison to um, engage in some rigorous self-introspection and some uh, long study of myself, but also other ideas too that have existed prior to me. And um, a lot of the ideas about service to self being service to others are rooted in um, spirituality that goes back thousands of years, um, historical concepts that go back thousands of years. When I started reading these things, they connected with me quite obviously on a personal level because, I, I, like I said, I have a front row seat at that conversation based on my past. And so, you know, when you are in the process of trying to uh, transform yourself, that doesn't necessarily mean transform into anything other than yourself. What that means is, just to define that, is to transform into who you are, to actualize the best qualities of yourself. I've sort of moved that service to others concept into my life um, and integrated it into my life in a way that I see how important that is in, in not only shaping my character, but also shaping the environment around me and leaving the strong and deep impressions on others around me. What is abolition to you? Okay, so abolition to me, uh, put simply, is the complete abolition of the current uh, system that we call mass incarceration. Abolition does not mean not punishing people when they when they do commit acts that are against our social construct of you know right and wrong, and our our social construct of you know safe public safety. It doesn't mean people will be able to do things to one another and, and not be not be held accountable or not be uh, quote unquote punished for those things. But what it does mean is that the current system that we have, which is literally rooted in the enslavement of black people and brown people has to go. Can you suggest systems that might replace it? What needs to happen is something completely new, yet uh, rooted in cultural practices that black and brown people uh, find, one, they can identify with, but two, that, that are culturally comfortable for them, that, that they can respect and um, and standards that that they can live up to and, and and maintain. What what it needs to be replaced with are restorative justice practices, but restorative justice practices that also involve deep levels of accountability, of being able to remove people from the community when necessary, uh, but at the same time, uh, therapy and treatment to reintegrate people back into back into communities. Does your art help us to envision what abolition might look like? Um, there's a relationship, but it doesn't, my art doesn't necessarily directly uh, encourage abolition, right? Although I do personally, but my artwork doesn't, doesn't do that. Uh, what my artwork does do is show that prison is uh, reprehensible in nature and it's a system of power that is, that is completely corrupt um, and built on the destruction of human beings uh, from the inside of them to the outside of them. If people don't want a world that looks like that, then, you know, they will be encouraged to seek, you know, alternatives or seek abolition. What we've seen over the last maybe two plus decades is we've seen what I'm going to call loosely like prison culture sort of seep into general society. You know, so we see uh, language, uh, dress, modes of behavior, the society being able to, quote unquote, lock down. You know, and that's sad to me, uh, but also uh, scary is to see the society become more like the prison. And so I would encourage people to, you know, think about abolition as being something that not only abolishes prisons, but also 
has a positive impact or effect on the society at large. Mary Enoch Elizabeth Baxter is an incredible artist and activist based in Philadelphia whose project Ain't I a Woman is included in the exhibition. Ain't I a Woman is sonic video triptych where Mary recounts her 43 hours in labor, giving birth to her son while in prison and shackled the entire time. She connects her experience to the long history of Black women's bodies being held captive by the state and Black women's reproduction being controlled by the state. And the title itself, Ain't I a Woman, is adapted from Sojourner Truth's 19th century speech of the same title, in which Sojourner Truth talks about the various forms of oppression that impact Black women. Hi, uh, my name is Mary Enoch Elizabeth Baxter, but I also go by my hip hop name, Ice of the Savior. I'm a uh, artist who creates socially conscious music, film, and visual art through an autobiographical lens, um, mainly centered around my experience with incarceration. Do you mind just telling us in brief about some activist work you're involved in? Yes, um, I'm also a founding member of a collective um, called the Dignity Act Now Collective. And we provide supportive services, whether it's through political education, um, support through uh, bailouts, getting um, you know women or non-binary or trans um, identifying folks um, laptops to stay digitally connected um, or supportive services around housing, food, um, or, you know, job development. So that's some of the stuff that I do um, around activism. I'm also a teaching artist at Riverside Corrections. Okay, just for a little more context, what is Riverside? Is that a women's prison? Like, sure. Yes. Well, Riverside used to be the women's facility um, on State Road in Philadelphia. It's uh, ironically the same prison that I was held at um, when I was nine months pregnant and eventually gave birth while I was um, at the facility. Based on, you know, my experience and the experiences of a lot of the women that I engage with, um, you know, women of color, Black women specifically, um, are just treated far more harshly. I recently saw a woman that was pregnant being tackled by a policeman. Um, I believe it was in Kentucky um, at a, a protest for Breonna Taylor. But when I think about the practice of shackling and, and you know, just the long history of um, Black people and subjugation and captivity, when you think about slavery, women were shackled then. Um, women were shackled while they were giving birth. And we still have this practice going on um, in 2020 where I've been at like the, the helm of, you know, advocating for the banning of shackling of women um, nationally. Shackling continues to be an issue, even though it was outlawed in Pennsylvania in 2010. We hear from women on the inside that women are still being shackled um, while they're in labor and um, throughout their pregnancies. Um, so back in, you know, April of 2019, I myself and several um, impacted women, um, both on the inside and outside, joined um, Representative Morgan Cephas to introduce um, legislation in the Pennsylvania. So not only um, enforce 
um, the banning of shackling in Pennsylvania, but also provide other supportive services for women um, to meet their unique needs. Um, when prisons were developed, they weren't conceived with women in mind in a lot of um, ways. Making sure that women are able to stay connected with, the, with their children is a huge um, issue. Advocating for free phone calls to the caregivers, advocating for women not to be placed more than five to 10 miles away from um, their children so that they can have visits and maintain that contact and connection. Because we also know that children um, of incarcerated parents are 12 times as likely themselves to go to prison. Um, and that's how you know the cycle just continues to perpetuate itself. According to prison policy, 80% of the women who go to jail this year are mothers, including nearly 150,000 women who are pregnant when they're admitted. Right. So um, we see in that that um, a lot of times the children are affected in profound ways, um, not being able to engage with their mothers and vice versa, not um, the women not being able to engage uh, with their children and support their children in a way that's healthy for their development. So we, we see a lot of re-traumatization um, and just uh, the, the part of, you know, Department of Corrections, we don't see the corrective measures being taken, the rehabilitation. Um, so, you know, my stance is that, you know, the whole system needs to be abolished and dismantled and we need to envision something new. And, you know, I didn't get, you know, the proper prenatal care that I needed. I didn't get the proper nutrition. Um, I was literally starving. Um, I actually went into labor about a month early um, due to just not having the things that I needed um, to continue a healthy pregnancy. What is abolition to you and what is your stance on it? You know, abolition to me is getting rid of systems that perpetuate and continue more harm. It's providing, you know, the resources for folks to get the therapeutic services um, and care that they need so that they can be healthy individuals and contribute to society. Can you talk about abolition as the end of systemic racism and, and gender violence? Yes, um, you know, for me, reproductive justice is an issue of mass incarceration and an issue of abolition and, you know, black women's wounds just, you know, being incarcerated. Um, you know, I, I speak of a lot of times a womb to prison pipeline and, you know, tracing that back to slavery where our children were and our children and our families were separated. And you see a lot of that being um, perpetuated and continuing through mass incarceration in the prison system. And, you know, at the foothold of that is a lot of the systemic racism and white supremacy that has, you know, infiltrated all our culture and systems um, since America's conception. Um, the title of the piece that I have is titled Ain't I a Woman? And it's borrowed from Sojourner's Truth's uh, famous speech um, about womanhood. And at the same time, I guess during that time, and even now we see this huge um, push for women's rights, um, but oftentimes black women aren't really left or aren't really included in that conversation. So um, asserting um, my womanhood and, you know, declaring the fact that no matter what I've been through or experienced or all of the um, labels that are projected um, on women of color, um, particularly around the dehumanization of, of black women, even the fact that I have to assert 
um, that I am a woman too speaks to, you know, just how dehumanized and ignored and devalued um, Black women have been and continue to be. You know, at one point we were property. And even moving forward, we see a lot of the same things of over-sexualization and um, a disregard for our humanity. So with Ain't I a Woman, I wanted to put on display not only um, what I experienced while incarcerated, but I also wanted to film it at America's uh, first penitentiary, which happens to be Eastern State. Um, so the piece, you know, is, is very dear to me. Um, it speaks to my life before, during, and then after incarceration, me taking my power back, really just putting impacted people, specifically women, at the head of this movement for liberation. Roland Renee is a recent MFA graduate from University of Michigan, does work on textiles and um, really detailed installations, um, very labor-intensive, powerful work. Their work, No Spirit for Me, is included in an exhibition, and it's a deeply personal search project that engages with their father's criminal indexes there and evidence that led to their father's imprisonment for sex crimes against minors. And in making that work, said that it was part of the, their own healing process. So Rowan is thinking about issues of abolition, also from the perspective of someone who's been harmed by a person who ended up in prison, their father. My name is Rowan Renee. Um, I identify as a queer non-binary person who was system impacted through um, the incarceration of my father, who was convicted of a few felonies and uh, died in prison in 2011. Ron, tell us about your art. The court documents are, I would say, the core material element of this exhibition um, of No Spirit for Me, this body of work. It's, it's more of an abstract material. They like kind of shape shift and move and, uh, and have a, an effect on physical bodies and on landscapes and on, on people's lives, but like are not as, are, are not tangible necessarily as objects. Is the document the piece of paper? Is it the digital file? Is it the digitally searchable record? Is it a physical piece of evidence that's in a box in a police archive somewhere? Is it the like sentence? The sentence has a weight, but it's, it's not tangible. It's like written on a piece of paper. So I guess I feel like then working with documents it is kind of abstract and that some amount of this body of work is actually turning them into tangible objects. They're primarily printed on silk, on silk chiffon. They're like literally just printed on a very, very different material and a material that for me is about the body and specifically about feminine bodies. There's maybe a little bit about family secrets and like the stigma of a criminal conviction and living with an incarcerated family member, especially if they have been accused of a violent crime and especially if they've been accused of a sex crime. And also the weight that's carried by, um, by victims um, and the weight women specifically carry um, who have endured abuses that may, may never encounter any kind of justice. Because I don't think the criminal justice system offers justice to victims in most cases. And my understanding from how, from things I've read in conversations I've had for you is that you also think that 
justice isn't, isn't done for the necessary for the person who's caused harm either that that the system is not structured around healing around repair or whatever kind of breach or violence or hurt has been caused doesn't get healed through or even really addressed through the system yeah I absolutely believe that the violence just like kind of spreads outwards from this original harmful act that happens and like that sh that should be addressed in some way but the criminal justice system doesn't repair or restore anything seeing how my dad's case unfolded like and impacted my family that i can imagine a lot of other interventions that i think would have resulted in more accountability and healing than what actually happened and I think to some extent um, No Spirit for me is me as an artist trying to put into practice a kind of justice that is actually transformative and actually produces healing um, which I, I do think it has in my work for for my family um, and particularly for my relationship with my mother. How do you understand abolition? It's a radical proposal for I think a, a complete restructuring of our society around compassion, um, around ending structural inequities of all kinds um, that addresses the causes for violence. Like all radical visions, it's an ideal, but it's also real and tangible. And I think um, is in practice in different communities, like the way restorative justice has come out of Native American communities. You've been thinking a lot about harm and healing. How are you thinking about abolition and practices of, of healing and addressing harm? No Spirit for me um, is uh, the work that is on you right now in Marking Time. Um, and I think the process of creating that work has opened up my awareness and understanding of abolitionism. And I do believe that I am an abolitionist. Um, but I think when I started making the work, it, it wasn't that I didn't consider myself one, it's that I didn't think I had the understanding of what abolitionism was to be able to say what my thoughts were. And that it was a process of learning and seeing um, not just the personal impact, but the broader community impact and how the narrative of like what I have experienced and what my family has experienced um, fits into larger narratives um, and narratives of mass incarceration. I've heard you say in very powerful ways that your, your father caused harm to more than one person and also thinking about the kind of category that's placed on your father is one that um, people who've caused harm can never live down. And even once they're released, they continue to have to experience that hell and that isolation and that punishment, right? It's an it's a effectively social death um, that like, even when people have served their sentences, they cannot participate in society or even their own families and have to be supported by somebody <laughs> basically it is no restorative process it is a prolonged punishment that is effectively setting people up to like continue 
to cause harm in their lives because they've been given no other choice. They've been dehumanized. They've been stripped of their citizenship. They've been stripped of their uh, like status as a human. Looking at um, how our, our criminal justice system handles sex crimes as being really important to the abolition movement and something that is maybe not always at the, at the center of the conversation because it's such a difficult uncomplicated conversation to have right now because the way the carceral state has expanded around people who have been convicted of sex offenses is I think possibly the, the way they're trying to expand the system for everybody. Part of the even like the um, shortcomings in this argument that people are really concerned about protecting society from quote sex offenders is the fact that there's absolutely no public concern about the just preponderance of sexual assaults that take place in prison. We have no concern about like the ways in which people are humiliated, violated, tortured in prisons like every day, right? So it, again, it shows that like we've created these kind of almost like a category of subhuman that anything can happen to them. Some victims maybe fall into this category um, or this mindset, but it's a mindset that our society has created that like if you've been victimized, you are on this kind of moral high ground where you are justified in, in causing incredible violence to others and retribution and you're morally justified in doing so. Um, and I, I think as a victim, I think that's a false narrative. I think that builds a cycle of harm and violence that will just keep turning and we'll never get out of it. I entered this project with a deep desire to think about how art serves as, a, as practices of belonging and ways of connecting for people who've been rendered quote, bad subjects by the state, people have been labeled criminals, people have been labeled offenders or felons, how art can really serve to create new relationships, new ways of imagining um, togetherness, and also to imagine other ways of understanding and enacting justice. Abolition is not just a abstract concept, but it's something that people are practicing locally in communities every day. So for me, this project is thinking about art's relationship to imagining another way of being together, another type of democracy, another way of creating community and healing against harm and, and breaches that does not rely on policing and caging.